Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Kimberly. I'm delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have spent the last 15, 20 minutes sort of getting ourselves warmed up, catching up. We talked to each other, I think that was right before the holidays. Uh Uh, You had me on your podcast, and I really enjoyed that conversation with you guys. Very delighted that you had me on there. And um, I've actually had some feedback about that. I actually had a a gentleman up in the Northeast reach out to me and said, hey, man, I want to talk about some of the things you said. So I appreciate you having me on there. Um, But Kimberly, before we dive into whatever conversation you want to sort of tee up for us today, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, thanks, Jason. It's so nice to to be here with you. And it's always, always, uh, I was going to say stimulating, but that might head us in the wrong direction too soon in the conversation. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I always get fired up when we chat and I am so grateful uh, that you're sharing this platform with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell us about yourself, Kimberly. So we know that you're so, north of Toronto. We know you're in Canada, but my mm-hmm. listeners probably don't may not know who you are. So make sure they know yeah. who you are. Well, I am first and foremost in the Haudenosaunee Anishinaabeg territory of Ontario, Canada, and that is north of Toronto, about an hour and a half. I am a settler here, and I am also a uh, mother, a wife, a stepmother. I run a large family uh, with eight children, most of them adults now. I started working in fundraising when my daughter was one year old, and she is now 
turning 26. Um, I am a master trainer, an AFP master trainer. I've been a CFRE for 15 years. I was a fundraising consultant. I now work primarily as a facilitator, strategist, and a coach. I love my work and I love this sector and I love helping people be successful in it. So uh, I I have a podcast, which you mentioned a couple of them actually now, one with Jay as well. And I hang out on Clubhouse a lot. And I love conversations and I love audio. So thank you for having me here. Kimberly, I always clarify, how long have you been in the field in fundraising? 25 years. Okay. So I always like to, so I've been in a little bit more than 20. So you and I have very similar timelines. I've been in about 22 years. And I worked, I worked most of that. I was either an executive director or a director of fundraising. Uh, So I'm a generalist. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a, I think there's something particularly different. It's kind of like the conversation that we we sometimes talk about when we talk about Gen Xers, because Gen Xers are the ones who sort of know the analog world, sort of the world before the internet and the world right. before yeah. cell phones and all that sort of thing. And I think there's something interesting about our generation of fundraisers, because I think in some ways we're actually that last cohort, you and I and most of our peers, we're that last cohort who I think sort of, you know how a lot of us came in and we said that this is a backdoor career. It wasn't sort of what we showed up for. We mm-hmm. came through other career paths. Yep. And you got a lot of younger people that are sort of making earlier and more intentional decisions. Um, I don't think we're hearing as much. I don't think we're hearing as much that idea that, um, that, that I came through another career path. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. It's a, I, I fell into it through my volunteer work. I started volunteering so much that they said, hey, we should pay you. I got paid 15 bucks an hour with two small children and I got to work 20 hours a week and I was thought I had won the lottery. (laughs) And and I was I, I often say I was twisting the rope as I was climbing the mountain. I didn't know if I needed to do a direct mail piece, I would get a book on direct mail and just copy it out of there. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but that organization got me a membership with AFP and that's how I learned this profession was through going to conferences and learning from people like you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. You and I had a very similar, I was just talking to another guest here recently. You and I came in the door of fundraising. Remember how we were reading? um, I can't remember the name of the author, uh, but he wrote two books, uh, the millionaire mind and the millionaire next door. Do you remember that? I have the millionaire next door, right? (laughs) Because we were all told it's kind of like that intuition. I I was recently talking to somebody else who said, who said she, she, it was a, she, she was telling me, she said, I think fundraising's lost some of its intuition. But if you think about what you and I were told when we were told to pick up copies like the millionaire mind and the millionaire next door, we were taught to learn that intuitive sort of side of fundraising. Mm-hmm. And the, the the critique that the a woman was recently mm-hmm. sharing with me was that some of these younger fundraisers have, because it's so detached mm-hmm. from that intuitive sort of sense of who the millionaire is and the, who the millionaire yeah. might, what that is, uh, we lose some of that. Well, okay. So here's that. This is the tension point. The, the tension point is, and we talked about it a little bit on, on, on the intersection podcast is the, the importance of, there are some things about fundraising that are very tactical and it's important to, to know them. Um, and I would say it's even more important to be, really curious about people, about humans, to be really curious about the staff that you work with, to be able to tap into deeper conversations around impact and motivation and power. And and uh, and if you can be intuitive about your fundraising, uh, I think fundraisers are in a beautiful position to, re- and I've seen it and I've done it, beautiful position to really influence change within organizations. Actually, I have an example of that. Do you want to hear it? I do. I want to hear what um, your big idea is. We always tee up our conversations mm-hmm. with a big idea. It sounds like you got one for us. Well, we're at an interesting time, aren't we, Jason? We are at an interesting time. There are a lot of people talking about change. There are a lot of people paying lip service to it. But I think that folks who lead development departments are in a unique position to actually be able to take our sector 
into this new frontier. We are in a time where we're all reconfiguring our social structures, our work structures, our professional and personal lives and how they integrate with each other. Um, We have this beautiful reset moment, this reckoning right now at the beginning of 2022, 2022, here we are, where we've all lived through a collective trauma and everyone is reconstructing their lives and their systems and their processes. So what a wonderful opportunity we have at particularly the directors of fundraising, if we can keep them in their jobs to influence the kind of change that I think our sector really needs and the world really needs right now. So what does that mean that word reset? I love that reset word. Cause I don't think Kimberly, I think back on th- this episode is probably creeping just over when we broadcast this just over 300 episodes. And I don't think that word reset has been used. We probably used other terms similar to that. And certainly most recently in the last 12 months, there's been a lot of conversation, but what does it mean to sort of hit the reset button in the fundraising space? Well, I think we've proven, um, I th- what I wish we could do is if I could wave a magic wand, I would love to give every organization out there an opportunity to take a breath and to really ask themselves, are we having the impact? Are we showing up the way that we are we are we living according to our values? What are our values? What collective impact do we want to have in the world? And where are we doing a great job and where are we not doing a great job delivering uh, services to our community? And then if we could all take a pause to ask ourselves and our organizations those questions, then we could be bold enough to move forward in a new and different way. And I don't actually know if I'm making any sense at all, but I think that this change is going to be driven by people who are tired of dysfunctional politeness. (laughs) There are people who want to have real conversations and for people who um, know that the status quo just is not going to take us into the future. And we need to wake up. We need we need we need to wake up and we need to realize that that the future is demanding something different of our sector. And golly, I can't believe that word just came to mind, but we better listen. We better listen. It's, It's funny we talk about. Okay, so you go from reset. So I'm just going to keep, I'm going to just keep sort of spinning off your, your language here. So I, I, I've developed a friendship with Lisa Greer. You know who Lisa Greer is. I think she's been I on the podcast. Yeah, she has. I think Lisa Greer is an example. And, and let's say, so let's put you and I on the receiving side of a charitable gift exchange with Lisa. And yeah. I think part of what Lisa is doing, and I don't think it has anything to do with the actual content of her book, but what she's basically doing by the by just the act of doing what she's doing, she's mm-hmm. basically having that very critical con. She's saying, yeah. okay, we're going to start having those critical conversations. And if you're the fundraiser and I'm the donor, we're going to sit down and we're going to wrestle mm-hmm. with some of the messiness that sort of exists in mm-hmm. between my role and yours, your role being sort of the the agent of the, Mm -hmm. those on the receiving side of a gift. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what people are missing about like Lisa's book. I said Mm -hmm. this recently with another podcast guest, I don't care what her book actually says, which is what some of the criticism has been about whether she's right or wrong. It's not, it's not whether she's right or wrong. It's the fact that she can publish a book Mm -hmm. and get Seth Godin to put an endorsement on the front of it and get a mainline publisher to publish it and, and basically get it out there better than any of us could get it out there. We got to pay attention to what they're doing. That's that critical conversation you're talking about. Am I right? Yeah. Can I tell you a story about an example that I had with a donor? Um, I was a fairly new executive director. That's Jason pouring himself a glass of water. Um, as a fair, is it coffee? You're having coffee this late in the day? No wonder you get so fired up. <laughs> uh, okay, so I was a new executive director um, in an organization, and it was a baby fundraising program. And uh, I had inherited a $25,000 pledge, and this donor was giving $5,000 a year for twenty-five for, for five years. And uh, someone from finance came in and said, you got to go back to this donor and uh, tell him what we did with his gift. And I said, well, what did we do with the gift? And I dug around a little bit. They didn't do anything with it. I'm like, oh, crap, we got to go plant some trees so that I can go back and do what I'm told to do in a major gift fundraising, you know, moves management 
formula. Um, so we planted a bunch of trees and I went back and I brought maps and everything. I'm like, look at this is what we did with your gift this year. Are you good for your pledge for next year? And he just kind of looked at me and went, I guess if that's what you needed to do, that's what you needed to do. I didn't negotiate the gift. There was no agreement. I didn't know what he, what, what his intention was when he, when he made this pledge. Um, I just knew that I was expected to get this year's $5,000 from him. And I left the meeting knowing that I ticked a box, right? But it didn't sit well. So I went, so I called him back and said, I really felt like you were not happy with Um, what we did with your donation last year and I didn't secure this pledge. So I'd like to come and find out what's motivating you to make this donation. So he let me back into his office and he got to thinking about what he wanted to do with his money. And he called the chief administrator of the city uh, that we live in. And he said, Hey, do you still have that project that you need funding for? And he said, yeah. And so he hung up the phone. He said, I want to do this $1.5 million project and I want to help you with it. And so I went back to my organization and said, so he's got an idea for this project. Does this fit within our management plan? And they went, yeah, sure. So that $25,000 gift turned into a $1.5 million project. Why? Because he wasn't happy. And I was intuitive enough to know that even though I had ticked all the boxes, there was a deeper conversation that we had to have about the impact that his donation was going to make. So, you know, that's just one example. So is that part of that? So reset, uh, you know, critical conversations, are we, is part of that reset the fact that we've got to learn how to have deeper conversations with our donors? And I mean, the big, and, and I said this before you and I hit the record button, I don't know how many of us in this space who walk around with credentials and qualifications as talented fundraisers, supposedly, know mm-hmm. how to have those deeper conversations with our donors. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't. I don't know that a lot of people do. And I don't, you know, I, what are we talking about here? I just think about if we can tap into that, if we can be bold, if we can stop worrying about the budget and start focusing on really candidly talking to humans like a human, um, then we will get transformative results. And I've seen it time and time again with when charities that I've worked for and charities that I've worked with as a consultant. So, uh, but it's, it's tough. And through the coaching work, you know, talking to directors of fundraising about how to, how to go to that uncomfortable place and to know that it's okay for people to disagree. It's okay not to have the solutions, but it's it's that curiosity and the bravery and the the skill set around. Okay, I'd like to maybe talk about something that might be a little uncomfortable for all of us. Is that okay? And I don't know if it makes any sense, but I just kind of feel like maybe this is a thing we should think about. And you know that that gets to the importance of safe workplaces and safe cultures and and building a cohesive team that can get over that dysfunctional politeness that we talked about and inviting your fundraisers you know i think we need to call fundraisers something different we're not we we are a catalyst for change we really truly are catalysts for change within our organization so if there's a change that needs to happen it's the fundraiser who will probably be able to drive that change forward in partnership with the executive director, of course. Um, so that that's that's been my experience. And that's why I think this can be such a wonderful profession and we're in such a privileged position to be able to do it. But I think we're looking at the job wrong. We need to rewrite the position descriptions for fundraisers and, and also... <sighs> But, but it, it, okay, so hold on, it's right there where you're at. Okay. Okay. You and I have never been in the room together. We've never, no. never physically been in the same room together, but we've just arrived at a place in history where technology is allowing you and I to have essentially developed a meaningful relationship mm-hmm. without ever physically being in the room. And mm-hmm. you and I could be, you know, next week I could be meet you in Toronto, for example, and we could have a cup of coffee and we could pick up 
from mm-hmm. right from where we leave off today. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think we're at a place where all of the efficiency that we've relied on to sort of get the job done up until now mm-hmm. is now going to like it's going to it's going to begin to be a place where we can start having these types of conversations extraordinarily more efficiently like you and I mm-hmm. are today and do it from the office. But you and I are using the same skills that we would use if we were literally sitting across the table with Elisa Greer, for example, Mm -hmm. the the skills are still the same, but Mm -hmm. the technology now allows us to do it remarkably more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many of us are, is that part of that reset button? I don't know that we know how to do this. How many of our fundraisers out there can hit the reset button on their job description and stop tinkering around with special event calendars, for example, and start having conversations like this with their donors? I think that this pandemic, this triple pandemic, the social reckoning, the pandemic and the economic crisis is possibly could be the best thing that ever happened to our sector. Because (laughs) all of a sudden, organizations that were stuck with an event that was grandfathered in that nobody ever wanted to go to anymore, all of a sudden they 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 were forced to stop doing that. All of a sudden they're forced to build relationships online. All of a sudden they're forced to make sure that they have (laughs) their technology. And yeah, and there are people who I met online through the podcast or through Clubhouse um, because as a society, we are all craving community and we're all craving connection. And we've just lived through this collective trauma. Um, it's a beautiful thing to say, hey, I I met you. I think you're kind of really interesting and we're never going to be in the same room together. So why don't we just have a cup of coffee? You you in Florida and me way up here in Barrie. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and. And let's get to know each other and see what the synergies may be there. And the the same thing can happen with donors. The same thing is happening with donors. And guess what? They like it too. Peter Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel in his book, Zero to One, talks about this idea of competitive versus complementary technologies. And Mm. I think that fundraisers right now are, are basically stuck in job descriptions, going back to your idea of redefining yeah. job descriptions, yeah. we're yeah. basically we're basically increasingly competing with what technology can do without us, right? So rather than using technology to complement what you and I can do best, which is relating to each other like we're doing right now, mm-hmm. we're increasingly competing with technology that's basically going to eventually make us obsolete. Yeah, right. Because we're trying eventually, to. Yeah. Yeah, eventually, eventually the science of direct mail and the science of uh, online giving and the science of all this stuff is basically going to basically do away with our jobs. Or somebody or somebody else who doesn't give a damn about fundraising is just going to figure out how to do it without us. Let me think about that. Um, What fundraisers can do, I mean, they've proven it, you know, 300 plus interviews we've had on this podcast. I think fundraisers have proven to me that some of us are the best conversationalist on the planet, but they haven't learned how to do this with their donors because they've been focused on other things. I got up on my soapbox. Now you got to get up on yours. No, I know. I know. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking about that because I don't think that a good intuitive fundraiser's job will become obsolete because we're calling, let's stop calling them fundraisers. Let's, these, these are people who move, who create movements, who create change, who they're catalysts for change. They're not fundraisers. Right, but it's it's like what we were talking about before we hit the record button. I think the only types of fundraisers that you're talking fundraisers that you're talking about that can actually do that are focused on the subsequent gifts, not the initial gifts. All the technology is going to get all the initial gifts. Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. And and we're going to have to literally turn turn this. You know, we 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 remind ourselves every year that we really suck at renewal rates. It's because we don't know how to convert a relationship from an initial gift to a to a subsequent gift. We don't know how to do that, and that's where all that intuition comes from. Yeah, and that and now and the that technology is, yeah. is going to let us sit on platforms like this and have those types of conversations, but we don't know how to do it. And um. And that's why the phone and meaningful connections with donors is important. Although I do, I, I am going to, I am going to, you know, we have a friend whose big question at this point in the conversation would be, how do you scale that? 
How do you scale it? I don't, I, you know how, you know how you scale it? I think you ask for five times as much money. I think we start to realize that the average gift on Giving Tuesday is $125, and we know that donor can give you five times as much money. So instead of thinking you need five donors to give you $125, you get one donor and you scale their gift, not five relationships. Well, so you raised. I think you uh, changed the. I think we changed the relationship from low expectations in terms of giving to high expectations of the gift. That's basically what. That's that's that you 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 stop selling you stop selling cheap American cars is what you do. Right. Well, where does that where does that land when it comes to engaging communities? Uh, on a on a larger scale, and I think the word scale. Know, I think the word scale we've adopted from the marketplace, and I think the I think the thing that the nonprofit sector has to realize about the word scale is it's a marketplace principle. The nonprofit sector is here to basically demonstrate when the government lets us down and when the marketplace lets us down, we can actually do go about our business in the world differently. Yeah. Scale is something we've inherited from the marketplace. Yeah, scale actually does exploit people. It actually does take advantage of people. It's an efficient machine. We don't have to constantly try to measure up to what Walmart and McDonald's are doing. That's what you're talking about when you say scale. That's bullshit. Well, I think I think this this takes me down the path to organizations who operate with an abundance mindset versus organizations Ooh. that operate with a scarcity mindset. Right. And yeah. You know, and and it was Gail Perry. I remember her talking about fundraisers stand on a platform of possibilities, right? And that's part of the influencing change that I think fundraisers are in a unique position to be able to do because we can say, okay, yes, and you know, how do we find the yes there? Are we is are we? Are we having the impact? Is this relationship having the impact that we both want it to have? How do I increase uh, our positioning among the charities that you donate to? That's, but I don't. I don't think it's all major gifts. I think that it, if I think that the goal ought maybe ought to be with donors to be one of the top three charities that they donate to, regardless of the amount. So in my seminar, we don't teach major gifts. We're trying to throw out all the old lexicon. We don't teach major gifts. We teach meaningful gifts. So I want to move the donor from what I call a trivial gift, which is that impulsive gift, uh, what, 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 uh, what one 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 leader in our space calls fast food philanthropy. Basically, it's those impulsive gifts yeah. that don't really amount to anything more than yeah. what you're spending at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we have to move our donors from trivial levels of support that really don't reflect any meaningful commitment to the organization to meaningful mm-hmm. levels of support. Mm-hmm. And any do- in, in my workshops, in my workshops, uh, Kimberly, one of the things we do is we basically have fundraisers. We describe these three gifts: A, B, A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And we have them put their dollar number in each one of the boxes. Yeah. A tr- what we call a trivial gift, a meaningful gift, and a, a significant gift. Yeah. And without fail, we've been doing this for a decade. The mm-hmm. difference between A, B, and C is always five to 10 times as much. Fascinating. Fascinating. I I um, have been calling it an engagement continuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's moving you know, them right. It's 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 yeah. it's in, it's getting that individual more invested in the relationship. But I I, I think that I think uh, and, and now I'm sort of up on my platform again, and and you're my guest. Yeah, I, I did the same thing to you though when you were on mine. I, I think we got to move our donors from being what I call consumers to actually basically expecting them to behave like citizens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, is is that part of that reset button that we basically designed fundraising to look like basically consumer behavior? And we need to start having high expectations like we would of citizens. You know, that's a really interesting line of thinking um, because we are we are at this reckoning. We are going through this revolution as a sector if we're paying attention and if we can do that reset and stop and ask ourselves, every single charity that works out there right now needs to stop and ask themselves, are we still relevant? 
are we responding to the external climate that is today, which is totally different than the one we had two years ago? And of our systems and processes, um, what is still relevant and what, what can we get rid of? And bold, big, bold changes are needed. And I think that it will be it it will be people who are willing to be uncomfortable and and um push uh who are go- who are going to drive that change it it's so i don't know if you I, I don't know if i mentioned this on your podcast but right in the middle of a pandemic i heard two things that i think were profoundly important one was from um steven at uh the the team at bloomerang um and steven said that basically in the midst of the pandemic they started record you know they're seeing all this data going into the bloomerang database and they were mm-hmm. basically seeing that donors fundraisers and donors were basically picking up the phone and actually having meaningful conversations. So they were Mm -hmm. seeing this record sort of number. The other thing I heard from a guy at the Naval Academy Mm -hmm. is that they raised, they raised an equal amount of money by talking with half as many donors. Yeah. That, that that kind of takes you back to that question of scale. Have we basically exponentially grown our databases unnecessarily? And we have discovered that, that in, in this particular case, we've raised, we've raised the same amount of money by talking to people that actually want to give us more meaningful gifts. Is Mm -hmm. that what the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing, there was nothing predictable about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew what to, you know, I kept hearing during the pandemic, people saying, um, um, just keep doing what you're doing. Da, da, da. None of the experts knew what to say, mm-hmm. but in reality, it's still in a very unpredictable world. It still worked mm-hmm. out. Yeah. You know why? Because we were human forward. Oh my. Right. Like we, Whoops. we, yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> we act uh, like human beings instead of machines. Absolutely. And that's that deep connection that, that donors want to have with your organization if they care about it. And the donors who don't, who are just giving the giving Tuesday gifts, I don't, I, I think I'm, I'm landing more and more on that. I know, you're, that I know what you're Fewer, fewer, more, fewer, <laughs> fewer gifts. Fewer, more meaningful gifts and more authentic, connected relationships. And uh, and there's a reason why 90% of our donors don't renew. You know, there's 10% of the donors in our database that actually pay attention. And uh, those are the 10% that we need to really work hard at engaging. And I, so, Je- so Jennifer Harris, my our friend in uh, San Diego, she and I were both interviewed. You, you remember the article in uh, the 20, 2019 article in the Chronicle that sort of had the headline on the cover that said that don- fundraisers were fed up, right? You, do you remember that? I don't know if you remember that. I feel well. Just remind me and everybody else. So, so she had a she had a comment in there. Basically, Jennifer's argument was is that we're all basically we all feel the sense of betrayal at sort of what the experience is for us, sort of coming to the table to participate in this this fundraising, this notion of fundraising. Mm-hmm. And it was about the same time. I think it was a year earlier where the Chronicle had started talking about this notion of the disappearing donor. Mm -hmm. And I think we're basically talking about the donor and the fundraiser on each side of the same coin who are feeling betrayed by a relationship conditioned on low expectations. It's just low expectations. We've got to raise the expectations of the relationship and raise the expectations of the size of the gifts. That's how we get the scale that you're looking for. We don't get it by keep exponentially growing our databases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got too many damn damn donors. That's it. Too many donors. Imagine that. The organizations that I've worked with that have had a small, uh, fairly small donor base, have increased their revenue by 35, 40% by just doing exactly what you're talking about. And, and, and is that the reset you're talking about? It is. I mean, that's part of it. I think the other, the other part of it is, um, are we taking care of ourselves? You know, do we, do, we don't want, no, people don't want to work th- that way anymore. Why are we, why are we continuing to operate in a way that was relevant five, 10 years ago, uh, we need to blow the whole system up. And, and so Kimberly, you're in Canada and I'm hearing more of this actually being talked on your side of the, really. I'm seeing, I'm hearing this being more talked about on your side of the border um, is that you all are basically, you don't, 
what I'm hearing from more of my colleagues in in Canada is that we're not machines and that we're not scalable. Human beings are not scalable machines. That's not what we are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when we think we can insert you as a fundraiser into a scalable machine, we're basically exploiting you. And I think you've probably got more more Canadian colleagues on your in your neck of the woods that are going to agree with that. And you got a bunch of us Americans down here that have been trying to contract machines and it's not working. It, the system's broken. Like, <laughs> it, it, it truly is. And, and I, those of us who are, who are calling for real systemic change within the sector um, need to need to amplify our voices and amplify each other because we can't go back to the doing things the way we used to do them. The world is completely different now. And we have proven, we have proven that we can be responsive to the community. We have proven that boards can make decisions quickly. We have proven that um, development departments can try new things and, 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 and move forward uh, responsively to their constituents. Um, so it, it's actually a terrifying thought that when the dust settles, that we might go back to doing things the same old way we used to do them. I don't, I think we, we have an opportunity to rewrite the books and uh, not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but focus on those real, honest, candid, meaningful connections with our donors where we go to them and say, Hey, are you happy with what we've achieved? Or is there something else we could do that, that can meet the needs better? Does that make any sense? I, yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I think what, so when I came on the scene a couple of years ago, this is the first time I'm going to sort of go completely because you and I have developed a very meaningful friendship here. And I think I can be completely confessional with you. When I sort of came on the scene with my first book, I came on in a very sort of combative sort of posture. And I yeah. think part of what I realize is now as, as, as sort of, I've been punched in the gut and some of my bantering around on social media and so in a lot of these conversations, I mean, we're 300 conversations in here. And I think what I'm realizing is, is that, and again, this goes back to some of, some of what you're saying about sort of the reset experience um, that we're all experiencing in the midst of this sort of pandemic is that I have spent most of my fundraising career sort of bantering with those on the other side of some of these debates. Um, and I think we're all sort of coming out of this pandemic with sort of an awareness that some of those old debates need to sort of go away. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And that and that we're sort of fighting with some of the some of the stuff that I'm writing in this new book is about sort of uh, restructuring or redefining what it is the problem is, because mm-hmm. we, we keep arguing and kind of what you were just alluding to. Yeah. Are we going to when the dust settles on this pandemic, are we just going to get back to fighting the old fights? Can we please not? Can we please not do that? Because then all of the lessons that we've learned over the last two years go out the window. And I think that we could have a pretty interesting and remarkable future if we can help fundraising be better understood, if we can do it with more curiosity and more intuition and and really have those meaningful conversations with our supporters and with our staff and with each other um, so that we can go deeper. We can go deeper. And uh, so that, you know, you talk, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, an article I wrote, and you can find it on my blog called Fundraising is a Team Sport. And I have a confession in there about being new to a job as a director of fundraising. You talk about you launched your book with a combative attitude, like yeah. I'm going to take on the world. I call it a bull in a china shop. I took on yeah. a job as a director of fundraising and they asked me to bring in all this change. And I just, I just pissed people off. Like I was just, I was just so bold and so energetic and so full of myself yeah. that I alienated everybody around me. And 
And I almost had to leave that job before my probation. I did have a a come to Jesus conversation with the executive director. And we're like, okay, well, this is not working the way this is right now. This is not working. And the less I ended up staying there for five years and delivering double digit growth. So that's awesome. It was awesome. And the organization has a great culture now and a really robust fundraising program. Um, But that took a lot of humility on my part. That took a lot of humility I had to completely step back and go, okay, where did I go wrong? (laughs) I had to read the temperature of the room and I had to create uh, uh, partnerships with, with the folks within the organization so that we could all work together to move forward. And, uh, and so that, you know, the fundraiser is a touch point to, with the board, with the volunteers, with the program staff, with the admin staff and um, beneficiaries. We we do sit in the center of all of that, but we need to do it with compassion and empathy and curiosity and humility in order to really move forward uh, the organization. So. Yeah, I've been told right, and that's that's where that confession is on my part to the the. <laughs> the but to sort of reflect on where this conversation's gone. So I've been told my whole career to sort in my whole adult life, probably that Jason, you've got to sort of wrestle with the notion, you know, oftentimes the message is right, but the delivery is wrong. Right. But the delivery is wrong. We probably, a lot of us have probably been told that, but if yeah. you think about that through the lens of fundraising, the message, usually the message that we're delivering is right. But the um, yeah the message is right, but the delivery is wrong, mm-hmm. and so I think some of the delivery that we've been using has been built on low expectations. That's mm-hmm. my that's essentially my argument is that you know, and so I've got a I, I think where we're sort of talking about with this notion of a reset button, I've got to figure out as, and I suspect you too, we've got to figure out how to sort of push against that that culture of low expectations without pissing mm-hmm. our colleagues off it's that low expectation that ultimately mm-hmm. in that wrapped up in language like scale that mm-hmm. ultimately I think is burning our people out mm-hmm. that's a that's a really interesting point I mean you know we're all Sometimes feeling a little bit raw um, and beat up can lead to uh, really beautiful growth. And, and that's, I think maybe where the sector is right now and how do we help folks um, grow and thrive from that in, in a new year and, and do it in a, in a new and different way. you know, Adam what Grant. Saying, what are you saying? So you, let's say you and I are at the, uh, you, you guys have the big, you have one of the biggest AFP conferences there in Toronto every year. What are yeah. you, based on a conversation like this, what are you saying to that young development officer who's two years into their job? I always like to ask that question. I don't know. I My initial response <laughs> to that question would be to run. What the hell are you doing here? Um, <laughs> sorry, but that's... <laughs> I asked that of uh, I asked that of um, I asked that of someone one time about uh, um, about whether they would recommend whether they would recommend um, doing work in this field to their children to their daughter mm-hmm. and um, and the and the and the sort of the question the sort of, that's that was sort of her response was I tell them to run I wouldn't yeah okay that so like, that's a little bit tongue in cheek but. <sighs> someone new to the sector um let me give a more thoughtful response to that based on what we've talked about today yeah i mean trust your gut trust your gut listen you are not you know here's the thing about organizations think that hiring a crackerjack fundraiser is going to be the the solution to all of their problems they're not they're not the, the, the fundraiser can't fix the system on their own. They don't walk into the organization with a suitcase full of money. Um, so someone who is new, it's it, fundraising is more successful when you approach it from a position of service. 
how can I make how can I make your job easier through this work? How can I help you as a donor um, accomplish your hopes and dreams through this work? You know, and so so I think some of the things that I would want a young fundraiser, and you see them graduating from these fundraising programs expecting to be making $85,000, $90,000 in their first year graduating. And I just want to go, come on, this is not just be curious, be humble, be empathetic, and be a sponge. Just because you've graduated from a fundraising program and you have your diploma doesn't mean that you actually know anything at all. Right? <laughs> that, that was maybe too harsh, but it's it, they've learned the tactics, but there is a grace. There is a graciousness to this work. And my goodness, I'm only just figuring that out. You know, uh, people who have known me for a long time may be surprised to hear me talking this way because I, I am a bit of a bull in a china shop. I do tend to say things in a strident way. And um, some people really, really don't like that. But there is a grace that I've discovered at this phase of my career that has always been more successful than trying to beat somebody over the head with a hammer. Yes. And, but, and, and, and what, and that, and, and going back to the, I, I watched the reaction with going back to Lisa, for example, because I know you and I have both engaged with and consider Lisa a friend. I watched a lot of people in our space. It's it's not just amongst ourselves, right? It's not just sort of beating each other up over across the head with hammers sort of notion within sort of the infighting within the professional community, the fundraising mm-hmm. community, but it's mm-hmm. also beating up the people on the other side of the exchange. And that's what sort of, I feel like that same graciousness that we're talking about, perhaps we need to afford our colleagues on the other side of some of these debates. We also need to start affording mm-hmm. our donors on the other side of the exchange and start to realize that, hey, engaging with Lisa and understanding what it is Lisa's trying to do in the world and what it is she's trying to say, whether you agree with her or not, is far more important than you feeling like that you sort of one-upped her on in an argument about her ideas about how this should go about, go about. My husband and I bought a house five months into our relationship. <laughs> it was a post-divorce thing. And uh, we were both recovering from divorces. And we thought, well, will it significantly improve our standard of living? We'll provide a good home for all of our kids. It's just a house. If this relationship doesn't work out, we'll sell it and move on. Yeah. yeah. And at that time, our way of thinking was that a high tide floats all boats. So we're moving into... Uh, and we ultimately did get married and successfully blend our family for better or worse. But anyway, <laughs> this concept of a high tide floats all boats, uh, I think, is one that maybe we would be well served to remember. So more collaboration between consultants, more collaboration between charities, more collaboration between donors so that we can have a larger collective impact um, is got to be the name of the game going forward. And certainly at the intersection, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in helping you be as successful as possible because I know that if I help you be as successful as possible, I will ultimately become successful. And that um, that's a really joyful place to, to be in. And maybe we can all just try to approach our work a little bit with that mindset. And, and I think we'll see a big difference. Yeah. I mean, that, that collaborative, that collaborative mindset is embedded in when you understand the difference between, you know, abundance and a belief in sufficiency, like I have enough donors versus um, a poverty mindset and I don't have enough donors you know, when I actually believe that I've got enough of something, that that allows you to be collaborative. Yeah, the, the it idea sure that does. That, Absolutely. The, the idea that there's the belief that there's enough money out there. That's what we're hearing from our friends in 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 the community community fundraising sort of side of these some of these debates mm-hmm. is that to believe in the abundance of what's out there is to not feel like you have to hoard 
Mm-hmm. Your donors, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's a different way of sort of looking at, but it's not a marketplace mindset. That's the way the marketplace operates. We're talking about a different mindset. Yeah, I keep coming back to, you know, the two things that we could do if, you know, Jason and Kimberly ruled the world and could wave this magic wand that we talk about is keep the existing donors and help them feel like they are really invested in your work and um, keeps fundraisers in their jobs so that they can navigate uh, through all of these changes and lead their organizations to transformative results. Those are the two things that we need to do. That's it. That's that advice you're giving that young fundraiser at uh, fundraising day uh, in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> when we get back there. Um, but Kimberly, we lose our listeners at about 45 minutes in. That's right where we're at. We sure, we sure stirred ourselves up today. Uh, remind everyone where they can find you. Remind everyone where they can uh, find out about your podcast and anywhere else you'd like them to, uh-huh. anything else you'd like them to know about. Thank you so much. I um, Yes, uh, intersectionhub.ca is where you can learn more about me than you possibly ever would want to know. Um, and our podcast is there. We're still a baby podcast, just moving into our second season, and we've got a great year planned. Uh, and I'm primarily making my money right now from coaching so that I can help other people be successful. So I um, very much would love folks who may want to talk to me more about their life and their challenges uh, to look into that. And it's just a pleasure to be here with you, Jason. Sharing space with you is always a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.